Today's conversation is with Darren Sparks. He's a retired police officer in Indiana. Welcome to the Burnout Podcast. I am your host, Skip O. This podcast is brought to you by Throttle and Thrive and MyPodcast.media. Hey, we would like to welcome our new one of our new sponsors, Throttle and Thrive. They're a substance misuse treatment facility in California. It's a six-bed facility for men only. They... Uh, Focus on first responders and veterans. It's a very uh, family-like uh, treatment facility. Uh, Siobhan, that's the director for the treatment facility, I met her last year. Uh, she came to FDIC and sponsored us uh, with a worldwide peer support when I was the president there. And uh, she had a dream and a vision. And the vision has come to reality. Uh, we sent two people there last week to a, a former firefighter and a firefighter in uh, Florida. We flew them over there. Siobhan picked him up at the airport and got him to this facility, and they're there now, and they're doing wonderful. We do, uh, every week, we call and check on, make sure how they're doing, and Siobhan allows that. They got a workout facility. They have a, a good diet there, and they if you have a special diet you need, they work with that person that's going through there for their diet. They uh, hit 12-step programs. They do EMDR and all kinds of different things. You can find more information for Throttle and Thrive on throttleandthrive.com or you can call their phone number at 805-701-1309. That's 805-701-1309. Before we get started, let me tell you about our guest today. He has worked as a police chief at the Anderson Police Department, assistant chief, Uniform Sergeant, Detective, Training Coordinator, Certified Firearms, CQC Instructor, and he had 15 years on the SWAT team. Well, tell people a little bit about you before we get started with some other questions. Well, I'm a retired police officer. I worked for 30 years as a police officer and held many positions. Uh, was a chief of police for four years and a SWAT team guy for 16 and 20 plus years as a firearms instructor and a physical force tactics instructor for about 16 years. And I got to do a lot of a lot of good things on the police department. I was a supervisor at one time, a sergeant, assistant chief, so on and so forth. And I've uh, been married for 42 years. And uh, we have three children and 10 grandchildren. And uh, as you saw from the other, uh, one of the other podcasts, uh, our son Zane Sparks works for the police department. And we're very proud of that. And, and uh, still live in Anderson, Indiana and have been here since 1987. Wow, that's, uh, man, it sounds like you're a busy person. You got a big family, and it sounds like you had a busy life. And I know a little bit about you, but uh, <laughs> I'm hoping to get to know some more about you today. Yeah, you know a lot about me, Skip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From the beginning, what kind of inspired you to become a police officer or get in law enforcement? Well, when I graduated from high school and when I was still in high school, a good friend of the family became a police officer. I'm from originally from Connersville, Indiana, and a guy named Kenny Free became a police officer there, and he was a really good athlete in high school, kind of a guy revered. And that's that kind of put the, I guess, kind of put the bug in my ear to, to maybe look in that direction. But then I graduated from high school not knowing really what I wanted to do. 
And I, I walked on at a college called Hanover College, and I played football and baseball there and, and uh, struggled a little bit with my grades because I, didn't really, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do for a living at that time. And my older brother was going to school there on a baseball scholarship. So I went for a year. Uh, and while I was there, I met a guy named Rocky Goshert, who was from Indiana. He, he, had, he had graduated from Hanover College and became a state police officer. And he actually came back for a visit. And he was a, just a great athlete, great guy, good person. And, you know, here was a guy that got a business degree from the, from the college and, and uh, ended up being a, a state police officer. And so I kind of had that in the back of my mind. And then um, my middle brother in, introduced, introduced me to my wife, Jenny. And they were Eastern Hancock High School classmates. And uh, my family had moved from Fayette County to Hancock County. And we were married and lived in Shirley, Indiana. And while in Shirley, Indiana, I met a guy named Tony. And Tony was a, a new town marshal in Shirley. And I, at that time, I was working as a machinist at a place called Aerospace Engineering. And then what happened with Tony Huffman, this new town marshal, uh, he was working seven days a week. He didn't have any deputy marshals, so he he uh, ended up marrying a good friend of the family. It was a friend of, of my wife, and uh, he was like, hey, you ever thought about being a, a police officer? And so long story short, I became a weekend deputy marshal for the town of Shirley. And then when Tony Huffman moved on to the Henry County Sheriff's Department, the town board interviewed me, and I became uh, literally one of the youngest town marshals probably in the state of Indiana. At that time, I was 23, 24 years old. Okay, Darren, you, you moved from there to where, where was you going to say? Moved there to Knightstown Police Department, Knightstown, Indiana. And then from there, I moved to, uh, in 1987, came to Anderson. Okay. And then that's when you got on the Anderson Police Department? I did. Okay. Tell me, okay, you, got, you went through uh, Academy, and then you got your first week, you're on the job. Uh, what's, your, what's your expectations or what, what was going on then? Uh, just, I'd been a police officer at that time. I graduated from the academy in 1985. I came to Anderson in 87. So I had worked the street just in a small town and had investigated a homicide, did a number of accident investigations. We investigated all of our own crimes in that city or in that town. And, and uh, my first week here was just riding with uh, different senior police officers. Uh, they didn't have a field training officer program when I first got hired. So I rode with different senior police officers and, and uh, started on second shift patrol. That's kind of how I got my start. I don't really, really remember. We didn't have anything I, that I can recall, like during my training, that was anything that was really, you know, that really stood out uh, because it was just normal police work that I'd done, been doing for a period of years. Darren, back then, did they have any kind of peer support or anything if uh, that happened that they would take in? kind of coach you? Not that I recall. I, I don't remember when the chaplaincy program started at the Anderson Police Department. You know, like I've we've talked about before, uh, my faith has always sustained me a lot. My family, uh, we have a very strong family. Um, uh, and, and so that kind of was what sustained me uh, in, in the early years and throughout my career. Um, and then, of course, the department got a chaplaincy program, and 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 uh, which which helped greatly. Is there something like one of the one of the calls uh, early on in your career that sticks in your mind that when you look back you think, man, I was fortunate, or some other calls that you know some calls we we can't remember, but there's other calls you just can't 
you just remember all the time. Is there any of those calls that kind of comes to your mind? I've had a number of incidents uh, that I would call life and death incidents, uh, but but probably the one that, that stood out because it just hadn't happened in so long in our department at the Anderson Police Department was I, I was shot in the line of duty in 1995, and it was a domestic. Uh, the the girl had been beaten by a, a guy who was he was just out of prison, and uh, Officer Shad Grail and I were the first two on scene and. And the long and the short of it was he had, he had vowed that he was going to get a gun, come back and kill her. And I left the scene and went to find him. Of course, everybody, all of us were looking for him at that point. Mm-hmm. I had radioed on the air to all the other officers and, and uh, I caught him. He was actually coming back. He was doing exactly what he said. He was, he'd went and got a gun. Now we didn't know that he lived South of there. Sure. And I stopped him about, he was probably about a block from her house. He was headed back to her house to kill her when I stopped him. And, uh, it was 1995. You know, we did things a little bit differently back then. I, and I think any guy that that tells you that he, uh, in most cases, and I shouldn't say every case, but if you get injured in the line of duty, you got to always assess why did it happen. And, you know, I made some mistakes that night and he ended up getting the first shot off and he shot me through my right forearm. And it uh, it shattered the radius bone and, and uh, shot 50% of the ulna away. And it, and it also hit an artery in my arm. So I was bleeding pretty bad. I was able to get on the radio, call for backup, let him know where I was at. And I could actually look across this parking lot and almost see Shad growl with her. And then uh, the, uh, the fellow officers got there, the, the paramedics got there, and uh, I was treated and taken to the hospital. One thing, Darren, I heard something about somebody. You can tell me if this is true or not. When you were down on the ground or the medics got there, there was some more shooting or they covered you up or something like that. Was that a, is that a statement? So after I got shot, he shot me through the right forearm. And, and because I was standing there outside of my car, I, didn't, I couldn't only go left. My car door was blocking for me to go right. And he beat me to the draw. I didn't have my handgun out. I had my hand on my handgun. I had a flashlight in my left hand. But as soon as he shot me, he ran at me and continued to shoot. And the only option I had at that point was just kind of, I just kind of dove to the ground. And I remember thinking, man, if I can cover my head up and he, I can get him to hit me in the vest, I'll be all right. He shot like four more times and missed me. And, uh, you know, that's that's again, uh, that's that's where I uh, I know God intervened. I, I know he protected me that night. I know that to this day. And I and, and, and I know that he was there for me because I, I still to this day don't know how he missed me. He was literally point blank range. And uh, well, when I stood up. Um, he was walking away, the suspect, and he shot one more time at me and I ran around to the front of my car. And then uh, well, the medics were already, the AFD uh, Anderson Fire Department medics, and this was like right at midnight, so it was third shift. They were over at her house, the victim's house, treating her. So they were, you know, block and a half away, whatever it was, whatever that distance is. Uh-huh. And as soon as they heard I was shot, they put her in the ambulance and drove straight to me. I thought I'd been shot in the head because mm-hmm. I had blood all over me and it was from my arm when I covered up my head uh, after he shot me and then he shot the four, three or four additional rounds, whatever it was. I didn't know that, but I was covered in blood and I was bleeding. I was squirting blood everywhere out of my arm. Well, then when the medics got there, they got out and uh, the first thing they did is they saw the amount of blood, so how much. So they did a compression wrap on my arm, and I didn't know my arm was broken. I just knew I was in a lot of pain. And what happened was the other officers 
chased this suspect into a house. He just ran into a house and he didn't know whose house it was. And he shot at them. So they got in a big gunfight. And when that happened, uh, Dave Murdoch and Shipley both literally like covered me up with their bodies when, the, cause they were, I, I don't know, maybe a block, two blocks away. And, uh, you know, the, and our guy shot like 16 times. So there was like 17, 18 gunshots that went off. And, uh, yeah. And that, that was something to this day. I commend those guys for, first of all, for even coming into the scene. Cause a lot of, a lot of times medics, unless you tell them it's a secure scene, they won't come in and, and, and understandably so these guys drove right in. And, and I've always loved and, and thanked those guys for that because that that just showed how professional those guys are and how much they care for at that time. You know, me being a patient at that time or a victim. Sure. As much as I hate to say it. Well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, Zane talked a little bit about when he first saw you. They get you in the ambulance and they take you to the ER and you're you're there. And what kind of – what was – some things are pretty obvious. What, how was, what was your emotions going – after looking back and starting it, it's all sitting in what happened. You know, in police work, you have to have this warrior mentality and uh, you, you never want to be called the victim. And uh, so what happens is you, when you get shot and injured, uh, and, and like I said, our department had it, didn't really even know how to handle that because uh, like Zane had said in his in his podcast with you, uh, they literally had the suspect right next to me in a, in a just in a, a different area, right next to me, the guy who had shot me. And uh, obviously, we've learned a lot since then, and they they do it a lot sure. better now. There's been policy created and things like that. But I can tell you one of the things that happened was I had a St. Michael's medal, and St. Michael for police officers is the patron saint of police officers. And uh, I'm Catholic, so I believe in the saints. I believe they protect us. And I, I know who St. Michael is, and I think we all do that have read the Bible. I never realized until I got in the hospital room, I remember the nurses came in and, you know, they had stopped the bleeding. I, I had a whole, you know, entry and exit wound in my right arm. But I remember they started, you know, they wanted me to put a gown on, a hospital gown. And, and uh, when they got to that St. Michael's necklace, just like that, it, it hit me. It, it was like, he was there for me. I, I know that he protected me. And people can say what they want, but I knew. And I looked at him and I said, you're not taking that off. I said, it, it won't come off. It made me realize how, how important that was to have God on my side in an incident like that. And uh, I can tell you that at the if I if I had to tell individuals that you know everybody everybody thinks you know er, we're all tough guys uh, we are tough men and women that work the streets of Anderson I don't care whether you're a firefighter or a police officer or a paramedic you have to be but uh, until you've been shot uh, I can tell you it's a completely different experience and uh, and how you deal with that and as tough as I was the biggest thing that affected me about it was how it affected my family. Because I felt like I let him down. Why do you feel like that for, Darren? Again, it's because of that warrior mindset. You don't you don't want to be the guy that that gets injured. And I saw how it affected them. Like Zane didn't mention it, but Zane Zane wasn't sleeping in his bed for a year. He slept under his bed. Uh, my wife cried every day wow. for a year. 
because she, in her mind, it was like, I didn't make it. She, and it, it, she couldn't get over the fact that she almost lost me. I was in, involved in training for almost all my career as a police officer. And I would always tell guys, listen, I'm not being negative when I try to teach you about tactics. And, and if I see you do something wrong, hey, I want you to correct that because I don't want you to go through what I went through. There's an ironic picture of my family. Uh, Grace Baptist Church used to have Blue and White Sunday. And they actually, rec- it's ironically, they recognized Tony Huffman, who, who's that, the guy that gave me my start in law enforcement from Shirley, Indiana. Tony got shot in 1993 uh, and when he was working for the Henry County Sheriff's Department and uh, had a very terrible incident. And he's paralyzed to this day from being shot in the line of duty. And uh, blue, they had Blue and White Sunday at Grace Baptist. And there's a photo of Jenny and the three kids. Zane was nine years old when I was shot. And the, I think Emily was Emily was uh, 13, 13 or 14, so Chelsea would have been like 11. And uh, just the looks on their faces as I'm standing at the podium, someone took a photograph. And I've, sent, I've showed that to people, and I said, look at this photo. Look at their faces. They endured it as much as you do. And, and we, we all have to remember that. And it's important to understand that. Me, as an officer, I was like, trying to figure out what I did wrong. And so I had the audio from dispatch of my shooting and I was listening to it every day. I was, cause I had, if you think about it, I had a broken arm. So I had my right arm had to be elevated. I had a pick line in because they were worried about infection. So I'm just laying on the couch. I have nowhere to go. And I got an IV pole, a pick line and my right arm's elevated and I would sit on the couch and I would listen to that audio. And I don't know how many times I was listening to it a day. I, I can't tell you. But finally, my oldest, our oldest daughter, daughter, Emily, came in one day and she was crying. She said, Dad, quit playing that because they were reliving it. See, that's what I was doing. I was reliving that incident. But it was a training mechanism and a, a coping mechanism for me. But I didn't realize the effect it was having on my family. And I was like, I'm sorry. I, and I stopped listening to it after that. And that does it for the first half of today's interview. Let's take just a moment for our mental health tip for the day from Melissa. Hey guys, my name is Melissa and I'll be bringing you the mental health tip for today. So today's mental health tip comes from a chart that I've been researching on stress. And it's a stress chart from first responders. So there's a green, a yellow, an orange, and a red section. Green meaning everything is good and you're thriving. Yellow meaning you're surviving. Orange is more of the struggling area and red, we are in crisis mode. So I wanna give a couple of things that I've seen from this chart, as in what to be aware of when you're around your coworkers at work or you have a first responder in your family and you see them at home. So in green, they're thriving, they got this. They're calm and steady. They're able to take things in stride. You see a consistent performance. They know how to communicate effectively. They're able to take feedback like constructively and add that into their daily routines. They have normal sleep patterns and appetite. Moving into the surviving phase, the yellow area, something isn't quite right. So nervousness, sadness, kind of increased mood fluctuations. Um, They can become more easily overwhelmed or irritated. There's an increased need for control and difficulty adjusting to changes. 
And this is where the trouble sleeping or eating starts to happen. There can be a lot of muscle tension, lower energy, and some headaches that happen as well. All right, moving into orange, which is the struggling, I can't keep this up section. There is a persistent fear, panic, anxiety, anger, or persuasive sadness that takes over. Absolutely exhausted all the time. Poor performance at work, and they have trouble making decisions. Um, they avoid interaction with coworkers and family and friends. This fatigue that they have, this exhaustion, starts to turn into body aches and pains. And then their sleep is always restless or disturbed. Occasionally, you'll start to see self-medication with substance abuse here. All right, the red one is crisis mode, like I cannot survive this. This is where you see a disabling distress of loss of function in them. They're having constant nightmares and flashbacks, unable to fall asleep. They might even obtain insom insomnia at this point. They have intrusive thoughts. Their thoughts of self-harm or suicide start to be more present and they'll talk with people about it. They become easily enraged. They are careless at work and make mistakes. They start to feel numb, they withdraw from relationships, and they're starting to depend on substances now to get them through to the next shift. Okay, so with that being said, the green thriving, the yellow surviving, the orange struggling, and the red in crisis, keep these tips and signs and symptoms in mind when evaluating your coworkers at work and how they interact daily. And then also for those of you who have first responders at home or they're some of your best friends. All right, Skip, back to you. When you got when you got healed up and, and you got better physically and you went back on the street, was there any, did you look at things different? I did. I did. I, I will tell you this, too. I want to say a couple other things that I want. If anybody listens to this podcast, it's a police officer that understand this. One of the things I would always tell you is, Unfortunately, the way life is, people become very negative and they look at an incident and they want to look at what you did wrong rather than how you survived the incident and won and how you went back to work and did the things you were supposed to do. I hate that that happens and I wish officers wouldn't do that. You know, there was a lot of criticism about my incident. We can't do that. We have to look at every incident, learn from it. And yeah, if we made mistakes, which usually you do, if you get shot, there's something you, you could have probably have done differently. But to correct that, move on, and then be tactically sound from there on. I can tell you that it wasn't easy. The trial wasn't easy. Um, as tough as I think I am, the mental side of it was uh, I had to fight through it. I couldn't move my hand after I got shot for a couple months. I couldn't feel my fingers, and I thought my career was over. That's kind of what I was dealing with, too. And then I went to a, Jenny took me to a specialist in Indianapolis, and uh, I didn't even know that the, the, the radius bone had been shattered like it was. It was shot into a thousand pieces. I mean, it was just destroyed. 50% of the ulna shot away. Wow. And uh, so what I was fighting was, I got to get back to work. I got to, how do I rehab? What am I going to do? What's going to happen with my arm? And so I can tell you, I went on a mission. And uh, some of the criticisms that I got pushed me to be stronger. And uh, I was shot in Oct October 5th, 1995. I became a sergeant in January of 96. I went back to work in either November. I went back and worked light duty. I think I went back in November. And uh, then I got back in the weight room. 
And in January, I'm going to say in January, I was bench pressing 350 again. I was back to, I knew I had to fight this worry mentality kicked in. I was like, I'm going to go back. I'm going to show everybody. I'm going to get back and show them that they can recover if they have an incident like this. I was doing it for the positive. And uh, I was back on the street. Ironically, my first night back on the street, true story, um, I always drove even in the winter with my window cracked so you can hear what's going on in the city on third shift. And uh, I hear a gunshot. My very first night back on third shift. And the gunshot's a block from me or whatever. And I'm like, oh, crap. You know, here we go. Here we go again. So I drove over there. And sure <laughs> enough, it was a little, it was a guy that's a, he's has since been killed. Uh, he was a little gangbanger, uh, which was the same with the guy that, that had shot me. He, you know, there was back then in the 90s, but crack cocaine was big in the city. And we had a lot of gangs coming from other areas, coming here, trying to set up the gangs in the city of Anderson. And uh, we kept them from that there was just this group of guys. It was like, we're not going to let it happen in our city. And uh, we were relentless with those individuals. And so, but yeah, that it was interesting. First night back, I heard a gunshot, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you came back, you know, you had that warrior's mentality. You got on the, you got physically good, you got mentally good for, to come back. So what your family, your wife and your kids, you coming back, what, could you see or hear anything that were concern you coming back? It was tough on my, it was very tough on my, it's hard for me to even still talk about it to this day. And it's been so many years ago because of how it affected my family. There were other things that happened. They threatened to, they threatened to blow up our kid's school. Um, Kevin Early's, they, they did a drive-by shooting at Kevin Early's house. Um, you know, we were getting death threats. They tried to get to me when I was in the hospital. The, when I was in the hospital, the nurses came in. They're like, "Hey, we're moving you," and I could tell they were kind of frantic. And I was like, "Why are you? Why are you moving me?" And I was like, "Well, we can't tell you." So they moved me to a different room, and then I find out that they the gangbangers had been inquiring. They were trying to get to me. So there, there was also that side of it. You know, that that's another reason I wanted to get back out there and and uh, make a difference and and do what I needed to do to, uh, to show strength that that. You know, it's not it's not a weakness that the police officers are strong and and uh, and and I was back then. There was a lot of uh, I I wasn't very happy that someone was threatening to blow my kids up and other kids in our city. And so, uh, sure, that motivated me a little bit too. But uh, the first night back to work, I can tell you that, that it was very tough on my family. My my kids all came and I didn't know this because I walked out, hugged them all, kissed them good night. And uh, walked out the door, and I guess they all got on the couch with Jenny, and they all cried, and sure. they were worried, you know. They'd seen their their dad get hurt in the line of duty, and they saw me go through the rehab and everything I had to go through. And, and uh, you know, the other thing, is, it's always not just physical rehab, it's mental rehab, too. And, and uh, it took me a number of years. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it, it was, I'm not afraid to show that. It's not easy when you go through an incident like that to just recover and go right back after it. And but I knew that's where. And I was still on the SWAT team then. I was, and I ended up being point guy on the SWAT team. So we went after a number of armed suspects throughout my the years after I was shot. Well, Darren, with with all that, you know, you're talking about going through the mental part. Did you ever get any kind of therapy or talk to any of the anybody about what's going on between your ears? You know, remember it was 1995. Things have changed a lot since then, and because of people like you and and um, 
they understand more about PTSDs and, and I think in, in firefighting and in law enforcement. And I still don't think they, I still don't think we're doing enough. I really believe that. I, I, I wish, I wish there were there that the, that even our pension that there were, you know, cause the military, God bless them. I mean, they, they go over there for a year, six months, whatever it is. And man, those guys, those men and women have seen horrible, horrible things. And, uh, but they see it in a short span of time, whereas a police officer or firefighter sees it over a period of years. It's just one after another, bang, bang, but not all the time. But uh, you and I know, I mean, we, we can talk about our incidents and uh, and I've had many that, that, that still haunt me to this day. I mean, I'm not going to lie about it. The way I get through it is I pray about it. And, and uh, but it. It's uh, back then. All they had was I. I saw a psychiatrist. I think once or twice, and I honestly, it was more of a fit for duty as a fit for duty type deal. And after that, I never, I never went to therapy. Well, I know you know, like you said, a lot's changed since then, and and you've done, you've been through, a, you've been through a whole lot, but also you've been through a lot of good stuff. You know, what's what's some of the high, highlights of the job that comes to mind to you? Well, always the brotherhood. I mean, I miss that to this day, and I've been out of it for, it'll be 12 years in June. That's that's why when I go up there, if I go up there, get a chance to go up and work out in the gym and stuff, I, I get to see uh, the guys that I worked with, and I obviously get to see my son. And, uh, you know, they always, I get more, I think I get more talking done than I do working out just because I enjoy being around them so much. Well, Darren, there's somebody out there right now, they're listening to you. They might be in a squad car, it might be two o'clock in the morning, and they might be on a, at a fire station or it might be somebody that's overseas and they're, they're just kind of lost, man. They, they, they seen all this stuff. They don't know how to handle it. They reach out, you know, they, they, they think they can't share it. They're embarrassed about it or they don't want to get their gun taken away. You know, that fear that a lot of law enforcement has, uh, if they share something, what would you tell them right now to, to about getting help? I would tell you that, uh, if, if you first and foremost, if you don't have a belief in something bigger than this world, and in my case, it's God. You have to have some faith-based idea, and hopefully it's in knowing that there's a God that oversees all this, get the help that you need. It's it Forget that stigma of that it's a weakness. It's not a weakness at all. It actually makes you stronger uh, to get help and, and so that you can live your life, because you're not always going to be a firefighter or a police officer. You're not always going to be in the military. You're going to have a civilian life at some point, just like I'm having right now. And you want to be able to enjoy that time and enjoy your loved ones and your family. I've got 10 grandkids, so um, I, I, we have a lot of love in our family. We're very t- tight knit and close. Well, if, if I'm not stable in myself, how can I have a stable lifetime with them? And so it's so important. Sure. So reach out. Well, Darren, you spoke about reaching out. Anybody out there, if you're having an issue, dial 988. It's a suicide prevention line, but it's also a helpline. If you just, or you can text seven four one seven four one. If you don't, you don't feel like talking to somebody. They don't trace your call or anything like that. But that's nine eight eight or seven four one. You also can go to every Sunday night at six p.m. Eastern. Burnoutpodcast.org. Scroll down, and we do a support Zoom meeting at six p.m. Uh, every Sunday. Worldwide peer support. If you go to worldwidepeersupport.org on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays, we have a. They have a meeting there at 8 p.m. Eastern also, too. But remember, if you need us, uh, message us, uh, whatever you need to do, we'll, we'll be here for you. Darren, I always ask this of every guest. Is there like a scripture, a quote, or something when tough or getting hard for you that always resonates in your heart 
that you repeat to yourself? True strength comes from God. I think is probably the biggest one that I've tried to share with other individuals. And uh, when when I was a field training officer, I always told the young people that were coming into the profession as I was training them, I always tried to tell them, listen, you have to put God, here's how you have to have it in your life. This is the order you have to have it. God first, your family and country and friends is second, and your profession is third. And don't ever let that get out of that, what that, that line is, the, that priorities where those priorities are set in your life because you won't make, I used to tell them you won't make it 20 years in this profession because you're going to see many, many terrible things and uh, you have to be able to endure it in, in a way that's, that's going to allow you to get back out on the street and help and protect the citizens of your community. So uh, true strength comes from God would probably be the quote that I would, I would use more than anything. Well, Darren, I really pre- appreciate you coming on here and, and sharing your heart with everybody. And, and I, I just, uh, I hope you, you know, with your words that somebody out there heard you, connected with you and, and takes that, takes that advice. But I'd like to thank everybody for listening to the Burnout Podcast. If you want to get a hold of us, go to burnoutpodcast.org messages. We can get you in contact with Darren if you need to talk to him. But until then, go home tonight, shut your phone off, shut your scanner off and get some sleep. Thank you.